I'll tell anybody, like you said, the words after anything that follow. I learned many years later, anything that follows I am will hunt you down and take over you. So if you walk around saying, man, I am stupid, I am dumb, I am a failure, those, those, that's going to be your reality if you keep saying it. If you walk around saying, man, I am somebody, I'm a child of the Most High God, I am beautiful, I am blessed, that's going to hunt you down and take over you. You're listening to Guards Down. This is Greg Washington. Hey, everyone, this is Greg Washington, and welcome to our episode of Guards Down. I have with me today a very special guest, Mr. Brian Anderson. How's it going this morning? I'm doing wonderful. Can I complain, my brother? I, I'm doing wonderful. It's good to be here. I am honored to be here. Same. You and me both uh, to, to wake up and to just feel alive. Uh, one of the yeah. routines that I do every morning I wake up is I practice gratitude. So yes. they're going outside and just looking at all the beautiful colors and things around me. You hear the birds chirp or go for a walk and just enjoy the day to get my day started yes you know yeah i i, I do the same anytime that i wake up man that it's a blessing a true blessing from god and i and i i'm just so grateful so grateful because once again somebody went to bed last night and didn't make it we did indeed indeed so tell us about yourself well real quick i i i'm uh I'm Brian Anderson from Jersey City, New Jersey. I am what they call a certified peer specialist, certified recovery educator, certified whole health and wellness coach, certified rap facilitator, certified mental health, uh, first aid trainer, yada, yada, yada. I got a whole lot of certifications. When I go, when I go out and speak, what I want the audience to know, what, what I want the audience to take away is that Brian Anderson is a mountain climber. What do I mean by that? Brian Anderson has been through some things in his lifetime, such as homelessness at the age of five with my father and my two older brothers, molestation at the age of seven and eight years old, um, chronic homelessness after that, once again, with my father, my two older brothers, self-hatred, mental illness, uh, turned to drugs at the age of 17 to ease my troubled mind, was addicted at the age of 18, had my first suicide attempt at the age of 19, in and out of jail on three different occasions from the age of around 21 to 25 years old. Um, locked down inpatient treatment at the age of 26, had my, I had my second suicide attempt before that, and then locked down inpatient treatment for 28 days. I can go on and on about what I've been through in my lifetime. And, uh, but what I love to tell people that Brian Anderson, once again, as a mountain climber, man, I never gave up. And with the help of God, uh, a father who never st- he ceased praying for me, and a gentleman who had been through what I was going through. I met a man named Curtis Graham many years ago, and he told me his recovery journey. It brought hope into my life. And, man, as a result of that, change has happened in my life. I, I'm now a two-time author of two books that have made their way to South Africa, Japan, the UK. I've been on TBN twice telling my story of hope and recovery. I've been on Atlanta Live twice telling my story of hope and recovery. Um, I, I hooked up with beautiful people like uh, Vanessa uh, Anderson, who's, who's doing a tremendous work here in the community. And uh, 
I just love it. I founded my own nonprofit, uh, Beautiful Scars, Inc. Our motto is come to us with open wounds and leave with beautiful scars. I could go on and on, my friend, but I, I, I'm just so ready to give a word of hope and inspiration and encouragement to those that are listen, maybe listening yet. Man. Well, look, I can already tell that you got some words of wisdom to share with us today uh, to, to have life thrown at you at such an early age and to come out on the other end. Uh, that, that's just an honor in itself just to be speaking with you. So I, I really appreciate you, you know, you, you coming and talking today. Uh, of course, you know that the podcast is about how different cultures deal with trauma and grief. And so I, I like to start because you know, I believe that trauma and grief shapes your life. Uh, the person that you become, how you go through, and also how you transition, you know, and the things that you endure along the way. Uh, so growing up, did your parents teach you how to deal with trauma and grief? Five years old is when everything switched. We spent time, you know, home, sleeping in cars. So my father never taught us how to deal. Uh, the questions were never answered, and the, but frankly, to be honest with you, we never asked the question: Why are we out here in the streets? Why, why, where is mother? Why, why are why are we sleeping in the car? So all of that took an, a profound effect on, on on my life. Trauma happened way early on my life, and as a result of that, I, I suffered from dyslexia as well because that early onset of trauma that took place in my life. You know, it, it does something to a young child's learning ability. And I did not, once again, I was just more coals on the fire, so to speak. So uh, to answer the question that there was not, they were so angry at each other that, that there was no lessons taught to the children. We were just casualties of war, so to speak. And um, so, no, growing up in the projects there before the age of five, um, we, we we all thought that the whole world got beat with hot wheel tracks and extension cords and ironing cords. We never knew that that was abuse, physical abuse, but because everybody in the projects, the, the same kids would come outside with bloody welts on their arms and, and things like that. We thought that was the norm, quote unquote. Sadly enough that too often in our communities, uh, trauma and, and abuse is the norm. And we don't know the, the adverse effect that it has had on our lives. Yeah. Man, so when you, you talk about growing up and, and just knowing that it was the norm, at what point did you, did you become self-aware that it wasn't? My brother, it wasn't it wasn't until once again, I met a man named Curtis Graham many years after that, that this was after the homelessness, after the molestation, after the 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 the, the three times jail, after the drug addiction, after all of that, while I was in the middle of my drug addiction, while I was in the middle of my mental undiagnosed mental illness, I met a man. I need to mind. I need to express this point. My father had become a minister by that time. 
And uh, my father would pray for me. He would have the elders pray for me. They would take me to counseling and people would ask me, you know, what's wrong with you, man? What's wrong? And I would tell them, well, I, you know, I got this thing with drugs. I'm in and out of jail. I've ruined the relationships with my family members. And, 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 and I, I, I just can't get it right. There's something that's taking place in my mind that I can't explain. I would answer the question, what was wrong? No one ever asked me, what happened to you? There lies the trauma. There lies the, the meat, the crust of, the, of the, the situation. No one ever asked that simple question, what happened to you? It wasn't until I met that man, Curtis Graham. Curtis Graham pulled me to the side one day, and, and, and for some reason, he knew that I was struggling. I never told him, but there's something about a person who has been through that can look at a person who was going through and tell that person needs help. Curtis pulled me to the side one day and started to share with me his recovery story. Now, mind you, you would have never known that Curtis had been through what he had been through. Because he would come to work sharing how he rode his horses on the weekend and how his family is doing well. And everybody loved to hear from Curtis Graham. When Curtis pulled me to the side that day and started to share with me his recovery journey, man, hope sprung inside my life. I never knew that it was possible. Yeah, I heard about it. Yeah, yeah. But that was that's way off in a far land somewhere that may not even be true. But standing before me that day was a man that had made it through some of the things that I was currently dealing with. That's when it changed for me. Indeed. Okay. And so tell us, tell us a little more about your background. Did you grow up religious? You know, what, what ethnicity group do you identify with? Well, well, I, I did. That, that was one of the, the, the key components to my mother and my father going their separate ways. My father wanted to follow a cert, certain religion, ironically enough. And that religion was the Seventh-day Adventist religion. And my mother was not too keen at the time to follow that religion. She still wanted to hang out. She still wanted to do the things that her and my father used to do together. But now my father's life is changing. So, so, so the split came in the family. So it was the Seventh-day Adventist religion. So as far back, I can remember yeah, we were, we were under a, a certain quote-unquote religion. And sadly, sadly, uh, you know, I love spirituality. I, I'm more of a spiritual person, not a religious person, because sadly, those same religious, quote-unquote, some of those people used to tell my father, you know, crucify that young man. He's bringing your ministry down. He's, he, he, we've seen him out on the streets. You get him away from your pastor, you know. So, yeah, that, that was the, you know, the religious aspect. So I did grow up inside of a church religion and sadly when it comes to mental illness and addiction the church is not apt to handle or to successfully treat or help a person because i was told everything from i had demons inside of me and and uh you know i i, I all of that I, I must have done something wrong in my life in order while my life is turning out this way and for years man once again i was at the age of five years old when my father took me from my mother so how could, in my mind, I'm like, man, I must have done something earlier than five to have to go through homelessness and molestation and all of that. Because once again, the church told us that if something's bad happening to you, you must have done something bad. Mm -hmm. And so given, given that, do you feel like there's a cultural difference in how people cope and deal with things? I do. I do. Especially in the African-American African -American community. Um, once again, 
where we have this thing that, you know, hush, hush, you know, keep it silent. You know, we really don't care what you're dealing with as long as others don't recognize it, as long as the outside world don't see it, it's all good. You know, we, we can deal. We, we can, you know, as long as we portray a certain thing, and man, that, that portrayal of this image literally is killing people. I've had friends, I can go down the list of friends who literally died and they were church, they went to church schools with me. They went in the same church with me and they are gone because it was a hush hush in, in, in our community. You know, as long as people don't know about it, we ain't gonna talk about it. We'll deal with it inside the house. And I don't know about you, but in my house, they said, don't take our business outside in them streets. Let's just handle it in here. And uh, let's just do it from here. Don't you? I don't dare want to hear you boys say anything about what's happening in this home. So as a child, we carry all of the, the secrets, all of the shame, all of the guilt that's happening in our four walls. And a child's mind is not apt to handle that. That's why it breaks. I got you. So you kind of lead into the next question of what techniques and tools did you use to, to cope when you were dealing with all of that, you know, different age, uh, both unhealthy and healthy? Well, at first it, it was, I had to ease my troubled mind because once again, I had suffered so much trauma in my lifetime that, you know, there was no going to counseling. There was no medication. That, that's a no-no in my in our community, man. That, so there was no going to counseling. Once again, we handle it in-house. So, and nothing was being done, all but prayer. Pray, my father prayed for me. My father had the elders pray for me and they anointed me with oil and all of that and their prayers. And I believe their prayers kept me alive. But once again, it wasn't until I met that man, Curtis Graham. But the bad coping skills that I used to use I turned to drugs, man. I needed something to ease my troubled mind. And so once again, at the age of 17, my father sent me away to a Christian boarding school. I had never tasted drugs. I knew that I showed up there broken, uh, socially awkward, not knowing how to deal. All of this trauma that I had experienced until that age. And then I met some guys on, on that campus where they would go behind a building and they would come back laughing and joking and smiling and look like they were having fun. And I yearned for whatever that, man, I, I want to be with them. I want to go with them. So I asked and I was accepted into that group. And my first day of using drugs was when we went behind a building on this Christian Academy campus. And man, it seemed like all of my woes, all of my, all of the trauma, all of the, everything that I had ever dealt with in my life seemed to melt away for that moment. And for the first time, man, this good feeling rushed all over me and I yearned for that. So when the high would go away, man, the more of the, more of the depression came. So I would seek out more drugs to get back that feeling I was chasing, that feeling because I wanted to feel better. I wanted to feel good. So that was the bad coping mechanism that never worked out uh, uh, for me. But I, I, I would gamble my life just to get a glimpse of that moment of euphoria with the drugs. And, and of course, but later on in my life, once again, Curtis Graham taught me this amazing thing. And Curtis was not a psychologist. He was not a psychiatrist. He was just a man that had been through. Curtis told me this profound thing that I still teach to this day that literally turned me, turned me. Curtis Graham said, listen, Brian, I want you to do something for me. He said, I want you every morning when you wake up and every night before you go to bed, I want you to stand in the mirror. And Curtis said, I want you to say these three lines. 
He says, I want you to say, I am somebody. I love myself. There's no one better than me. And I looked at Curtis. I said, man, that's not going to work for me. What are, you, what are you talking about, man? I need something that's going to change my life. I need something that's going to, I'm in a dark place. Curtis said, don't even try to understand it now, man. Just do it. You've tried everything else. Try this. So I trusted Curtis. Man, this, life, this guy's life turned around. Let me try this thing, this, this foreign thing that he's telling me to try. So morning and night, in the mirror, I went. I am somebody. I love myself. There's no one better than me. I am somebody. I love myself. There's no one better than me. Morning and night. And these are the things that I did not necessarily believe about myself at all. But the, there's something about looking at yourself in the mirror, repeating these words. I am somebody. I love myself. There's no one better than me. Months later, it didn't happen overnight, but months later, not only did I start to believe and receive those words, but my whole body structure took on a different form. I used to walk around with my head down, all defeated, not wanting to look people in the eye because I, could, I thought that they could see the dirt and the shame and the guilt that I was dealing with. So I would cast my eyes down and I didn't want to look people. And I started to walk upright. I started to look people in the eye when I was talking to them. I, 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 my whole being literally changed. And there's power. And it's even in the scriptures. There's power of life and death in the tongue. I knew nothing about that. It, 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 the, 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 the greats, the philosophers, all of them may disagree on everything but this one point. As a man thinketh, so is he. And the beautiful part about what Curtis was doing, I don't, I didn't, I don't know if he knew all the, the intricate details about what he was feeding into me, but I learned later on when I got into the field that, you know, subconscious doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's fake, but it controls 95% of everything we do, our beliefs, our disbeliefs, our actions, our interactions, the subconscious mind is that powerful. So now that it doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's fake, if I'm standing in the mirror repeating these things, the subconscious is like, hey, okay. Let me type that into his DNA. He believes that. I am somebody. I love myself. There's no one better than me. And the beautiful part about those statements, man, everywhere that I've been, everywhere that I've worked, every place that I've had the fortune to speak, I've had the audience repeat those phrases. And man, when I tell you it has resonated all over the country, I am somebody. I love myself. There's no one better than me. So when I hear other people do it and say it, all I have to do is just smile today. Indeed, indeed. I, I like that. I'm a I'm gonna have to research Curtis Graham and, and what he's doing because I mean that's powerful. Just the start of that, I am to be able to define yourself, to define who you are in that moment. And like you said, it's something that is not done overnight. It takes 30 days or 31 days to create a habit. And so to do that and to show yourself that type of love, self-love, because I, I believe that self-love equates to self-discipline. And, and, and once, you, once you show yourself that self-love, then you can exercise the self-discipline to do the things that you need to do. And so, I, I mean, that's, that's powerful, that's powerful. Yes, it was. It was definitely a life changer for me, my friend. And um, I'll tell anybody, like you said, the words after anything that followed, I learned many years later, 
anything that follows I am will hunt you down and take over you. So if you walk around saying, man, I am stupid, I am dumb, I am a failure, failure, those, those, that's going to be your reality if you keep saying it. If you walk around saying, man, I am somebody, I'm a child of the most high God, I am beautiful, I am blessed, that's going to hunt you down and take over you. Indeed. So can we, can we go back and talk about what you dealt with being homeless and, and, the, and all of the feelings and the collateral damage around that? Well, well, one of the worst periods of homelessness that we had, I mean, like I said, it started at the age of five, but around the age of 11 or maybe 12 years old, we, my father uh, moved us to Huntsville, Alabama, because he wanted to pursue his theology degree at Oakwood University down there. We didn't know anyone down there. So once again, we ended up homeless. One of the worst periods of time of our homelessness was when my father found this abandoned trailer on the side of the road. It had no running water, no heat, no lights, nothing like that. And this was the dead of winter when we found ourselves in this abandoned trailer. Now, this abandoned trailer had a huge hole in the middle of the floor where the, the, the cold air would come rushing through. And the only thing that was inside of this abandoned trailer was a box spring and a mattress. So my father would layer us up with those, those uh, the little, little, morsels of clothes that we have and he would pull that mattress on top of all of us so that we would not freeze to death at night so when we, and we would wake up in the morning my father would go i believe it was like a gas station or something up the street and get an ice cold bucket of water bring it back and he would all try to we would all bathe in this ice cold bucket of water no soap no deodorant no toothpaste so man you're talking about the the psyche of a young man who who knows that this is not right who remembers that even though they were in the projects of Jersey City, New Jersey, the mother used to come in and put pajamas on him and they would be in a warm bed and, and, and they would have a television plan and they would laugh and they, he remembers the smell of bacon frying in the morning time and he remembers the sm smell of laundry drying as the mother opened the windows and let the, the, the line that the clothes was on just blow through. He remembered all of that. So it wasn't foreign. So you're talking about somebody who's, who's trying to grasp and hold on to those memories, but now he finds himself in a situation in an abandoned trailer with a mattress, a dirty mattress on top of them so they would not freeze to death at night. Man, something broke, something snapped in my mind. And, and that, that's when the mental illness just took over my life. Because once again, there's only so much pressure that a young person could handle before he breaks, before he breaks. So as a result of everything, all of that, and I remember those days in that trailer specifically because, once again, everybody on that campus that my father was going to school seemed like they had a mother and a father. They had a car, an automobile. They, they, they had the look, the look of health was on their faces and it seemed like everything. So we were in a situation where everything around us seems right but us. And, man, that plays a major traumatizing role on a young man's life and, and the development yeah, man, to that's that's deep to go through that at such a young age, and to to remember what it was like to have just the bare necessities of life to now knowing what it's like to have nothing, um, and not even know you know where your next meal is going to come from, and to not know why. Uh, yeah. yeah, that that would do some damage. Uh, that would yeah. do a lot of damage. Yeah. 
Yeah. And 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 I, I must say that, you know, it, it did a whole lot of damage. But but the, I know we're going to get to the beautiful part of it. But I want to infuse it right here. The beautiful part about everything that I've ever been through. There's a statement that we use in my line of work that says nothing is wasted in a transformed life. I'm going to repeat that, man, because that is so heavy to me. I learned that late in life. I thought, once again, the religion said, man, if things, things are happening to you, you must have done something wrong in order for God to be cussing you like this. But once again, I learned nothing is wasted in a transformed life. Man, that's one of the most beautiful statements that anybody could ever hear that has ever been through anything. You mean to tell me that I could use everything that I've ever been through not only to bless myself, but to bless others. Exactly. That's beautiful. That is. And, and, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I, I was sitting here wondering, like, okay, you know, um, where did he go from homelessness? You know, and so to go from homelessness, you, you spoke from being molested. Yes. I can't imagine what that's like. You know, I know for for me and like with my family, I always have this fear of, you know, my kids walking out the door or not being under my protection that, you know, something bad is going to happen to them. Yeah, the, the, the molestation is where I can truly say everything broke because here's why. Once again, I was five years old when my father took us. We were homeless, sleeping in the car. At the age of around seven or eight years old, there was a family that took us in off the road, right? So, man, for the first time at my young age, I'm like, okay, we got four walls and a roof on top of our head, and we're not out there in that car, and uh, even though mama is not here, and I don't know where she's at, at least we got a safe place to sleep. Well, the person that, that, that owned the home had a daughter, an older daughter. And the daughter took a liking to me. She took such a liking to me that she started touching me un inappropriately. And then she started the molestation almost on a daily basis. And that's when everything broke because here's a seven and eight year old mind said, this is what I thought about. Man, if I go tell pop, uh, we're, we're going to be back out in the streets and we're going to have nowhere to live. So I shouldered it at such a young age. I made a decision not to tell my father because I knew that we would be back out in the streets. So at that young age, I shouldered it and there was no pleasure connected to it. All I remembered from it was the pain of it all, the pain, how painful mentally and physically it was for me, the pain of it all. So I shouldered it, man. And uh, I, I once again, don't know where that, that, that strength or that's, I guess my survival techniques kicked in because I did not want to, to be out in the streets and the bad part about being out in the streets. I remember my father would, would park in like a, uh, a hotel uh, parking lot and I would look up through the window and see, you know, sometimes I would see kids, their shadows jumping up on the beds and, and I, I, I can, I would just go, go places in my mind, man, I, I bet it's warm in there and I bet the TV is on and I wonder what they're watching and I bet the water is nice and warm in this shower. I used to envision how it was as we slept in the car. So now that we've got four walls and a roof, and although I'm going through this once again, more trauma that literally broke my mind, I can't tell it to anyone. 
Mm -hmm. And so just like with the homelessness, what was it for you that you were able to, you know, overcome the molestation, the, the, the mental anguish from it? Amazing thing. Years later, about, I'd say, maybe 30 some odd, 35, close to 40 years later, my older brother found that family. Now, we had moved away from that place and, we, you know, we, we, we were no longer with them. My older brother just looked them up. Man, we, uh, the family so-and-so, I found them on the Internet. And so all of us got on the phone that night and it was so good to hear everybody's voice. And we laughed and we reminisced and we smiled and we joked. The next day, she called me by herself, right? We get on the phone. We're having a great conversation. And then she says this. She says, do you remember when we used to, and she, used, she started to describe what was going on. And my hand started to do this. Now, mind you, I had been in the field of mental health for years. I had helped people get through all of their trauma, all of their, uh, their, their mental illnesses, all, all of their past. Now, Mr. Motivation, Mr. Help People Get Through Hand is doing like this on the phone when she was mentioning this. Then I told her, that, I said, no, 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 no. We, we didn't do that. You, you did that to me. You did that to me. And man, when I tell you I was set free, then I was truly set free. It gives me chills just to reminisce that moment because I still remember it like it was not yesterday, but two minutes ago. I still remember it. I was, I was carrying that, even though I was in the field, even though I was doing well, even though I had recovered from everything I was giving back, but that, I had never visited that trauma until that day. Yeah, man. Do you think had you not had that conversation, things would have been different? I, I don't know. I, I cannot recall. I, I believe that that conversation was purposed by, by the almighty God himself, because once again, I had been through failed relationship before that over and over again and could not understand why, why am I going through marriage after marriage and relationship after relationship? What is wrong? You know, why can't I get this thing right? And man, I'm telling you, if we don't get it right, it will revisit us for the rest of our lives. I, I, I'm sure you've heard of the ACE study, A-C-E, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Experience. I, one, of, one of the trainings that I took in my lifetime was trauma-informed care. And I, while I took that training, I got introduced to the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience, A-C-E. Everyone needs to look it up. This, 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 uh, this ACE study has 10 questions on it that anybody that has ever been through anything from the ages of birth to 18, and these 10 questions, it go into depth on what you've been through. Now, they, they say that if you, uh, that on the study, they say if a person gets four, man, they, they, they're more prone to premiscurity. They're prone to being in and incarcerated in and out of jail. They're prone, prone to early mortality. They're prone to drug addiction. Everything that I've been through, if you get four out of the 10, you, you are prone to it. I took the test about three years ago. I got nine out of 10 on this test. When I left that training, I immediately called my two older brothers. I told them about this study. We all started to cry on the phone, all of us. Man, we realized that 
man, this stuff wasn't normal. This stuff wasn't normal, man. Be getting beat with Hot Wheel tracks and ironing cords and extension cords wasn't normal. Not eating on, on a daily basis wasn't normal. Sleeping in an abandoned trailer with no heat, no running water, no electricity, that wasn't normal. Uh, being sexually molested at the age of seven or eight, that wasn't normal. We realized that, bro, we ain't even supposed to be here now. Man. But we made it. Indeed. I'm going to have to look at the ACE uh, uh, study to, to see, to, to get more in depth with it and to talk about trauma-informed care. Uh, for you to have all of, you know, the training and to speak with her or, or just the conversation in itself is, is what I wanted to kind of like talk about. Was it that you were able to talk it with her or was it that you were able to just talk about the trauma itself? I believe the power came from talking to her because I spoke directly to the trauma. And when, when you're speaking in a counseling session, it's good to get it out because we, we teach that in my line of work. Anything that we carry around is, is an awesome thing to get it out, but I believe it was an extra something put on it when you were able to directly talk to the trauma itself. But once again, it was nerve wracking. My hand started to do this. And once again, I had been in the field of mental health for years. I had helped thousands of people. They flew and flown me all over the country speaking in front of crowds of people. So why is Mr. Motivator's hand doing this? I spoke directly to the trauma itself, man. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. That's powerful to, to, to do that and to release it. Uh, it. It has to be something within yourself to be able to, to release, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's not, it wasn't an easy process. There's a statement that I ran across that says, uh, that there's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. I must remember, repeat that. There's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. So this right here was uncomfortable, but there's no growth in the comfort zone. So I had to go through that in order to get to the other side. There we go, indeed. Okay, let's talk about, let's talk about the, the, the last part that you were mentioning, these suicide attempts. Yeah. I had, at the age of 19, I had failed pretty much at everything. I was living with a family, ironically enough, that family that I was living with, uh, the daughter in, in, in that household is now my wife. But I, I was addicted to drugs then. I had, I had undiagnosed mental illness. I, I was going through major things in my life, but I, I hid it as much as I can from this family. My mother called that family one day and said, listen, my son is living with you all and he's a drug addict and y'all don't know he's... So they, I, I, got, I got, had to leave that home that evening. And my friend who was my wife's brother, we were good friends at the time, he dropped me off in, in, in Hoboken, New Jersey where some of my father's family members lived at the time. And now I'm homeless again. I'm sleeping on the floor of a one aunt here, out in the streets there, next aunt there. I had given up on life. I saw no hope. I saw no hope. So I decided that I'm not going to let another sunrise come. 
I, I'm done with this thing. I had suffered so much and I had failed over and over again. I'm done with this thing called life. I'm 19 years old out on the streets of Hoboken, New Jersey. I said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take a weapon because I equated using a weapon with more pain. I had suffered too much pain in my life. I did not want to go out in more pain. I wanted to go out as high as I could. And I wanted my heart just to explode. So I got an assortment of drugs. I got some hair on. I got some powder cocaine. I got some crack cocaine. I got some mescaline. I got some speed. And I got a, a, nice, a, a nice amount of all of these drugs. And I started to ingest it. I started to ingest it. I started to ingest it. Yeah, my heart started to beat and jump all over my chest. I started to sweat profusely. And then every now and again, my heart seemed like it was stopping, starting, stopping, starting. And I knew that death was near. I was in an apartment where pretty much everyone in there was using drugs. And but I, my plan was to not see the sunrise. So I would I would go in the restroom and use get more drugs and more drugs. And I wanted my heart just to explode. I ended up passing out on the couch in that apartment, only to be awoken before dawn that next morning. Now I have lost control of my bowels. I'm sweating profusely, heart stopping, starting, stopping, starting, stopping, starting. I get up and I run down out of that apartment, down the stairs, and I literally bump into a payphone. I literally bumped into a payphone as I was stumbling down the street, knowing that my time on this earth was, was almost done. The back of my mind, I remember my father's sermons. People who kill themselves, they're going to hell. So the first thought in my mind, I'm talking back, back to this religion thing, man, I, I did not want to have suffered hell all of my life here on this earth. And then in the afterlife, go to hell. My God, is there any sanctity for me? Is there any respite for me? I called my father collect on that payphone. I said, Pop, I need you to pray for my soul because my life is over. I didn't want my life. I knew my life was ending. I wanted him to pray for my soul so that in my mind, in the afterlife, man, at least I could have some respite. At least I could have some type of peace there. My father prayed for me. My father, after he prayed for me, asked where I was at. I did not know exactly. I looked up, saw a street sign. My father told me to hold on. He called some of my relatives that lived in that area. They came and got me, got me in the back of an ambulance and rushed me to the emergency room as they were working on saving my life. My life was saved that early that morning because I did not want to go to hell. Hear me clearly. It's not that I wanted to live. I knew that my life was over. I just didn't want to go to hell. And I, and I, I chronicle both of those attempts in all my life story in my first book, uh, Beautiful Scars, My Journey to Wholeness and Healing. I got a copy of it right there. I hold up to the camera. Beautiful Scars my, by Brian Anderson, by My Journey to Wholeness and Healing. By Brian Anderson. Wow, that's that's deep. That is that's a lot to unpack. Yeah. I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to go to hell. Yeah, yeah. Where you get yeah. where, where where do you go with that? You know what I I I when I think about that early that morning before sunrise, uh, that's the only thing that I did not want to do. I did not want to catch hell on this earth and go to hell after this earth. I I was looking for 
The reason why I tried to kill myself is because I wanted respite. I wanted peace. I wanted out of this pain. There's a statement that we use in my line of work that says, when one lives without hope, the willingness to do is paralyzed. It is being disabled not by illness or disease, but by despair. I'm going to say that one again. When one lives without hope, the willingness to do is paralyzed. It is being disabled not by illness or disease, but by despair. I was, I had no hope. So I, I and there was no, uh, there was only despair. So I wanted out. I, I was tapping out, did not want this pain anymore, but I did not want to go to hell. Indeed. And so that was the first one. What happened to the second one? The second, the second time my, my, my father had taken me back in, I, this years later when I was around 25, 26 years old, my father was a preacher now, well-established. He had this nice home in this nice, quiet neighborhood. And uh, once again, I, I had been taken from the home. I had been, you know, robbing my fathers and, you know, just pillaging, uh, ruining relationships. I, I, once again, I, I was down, spiraling down. My father had to preach out of town, so he took my stepmother, my two younger sisters, and they went out of town. So I'm there saying, okay, this is my chance. I I can't do it. I know what I did wrong the first time. I'm not going to use a weapon, but man, I'm going to get even more drugs and even more of an assortment, and I'm going to take them faster this time. My heart was almost to the verge of exploding. I know what I got to do this time. There's no one here. There's no one to come rescue me. Yeah, it's on now. So I started to ingest those drugs in this empty house, in this quiet neighborhood. Once again, sweating profusely, heart beating all over the place. I'm feeling truly that death is near and I'm welcoming it. And and the the more my heart beats erratically, the more I start to sweat, the more I started to use drugs because I wanted this thing over with this time. I hear something. I look out my window. I'm upstairs in this beautiful home, in this beautiful neighborhood, in this quiet neighborhood. And I look across the street to the house across the street. And I write about it in my book. I see two demons sitting on the top of this house, smoking. I don't know what it was, but I can literally see the tip of the, 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 whatever they were smoking light up and then it go out. Two demons. I I fall back and I, I roll back into my closet. I crawl back to the window. I peep out the window. I see those same two demons float from the top of that house down to the the yard. And then I see one of them run across the street. I can literally hear his hoof prints as he ran across the street. We had this big, huge tree in our front yard. He hides behind this tree. And periodically, he would peek up at my window and it would go back behind the tree. Peek up out of my window and go back behind the tree. I rip off all of my clothes. I run downstairs. I bust open the door. I'm yelling to the top of my lungs, come on and get me. I'm ready to die, but I'm not going out like a punk. Come on, I am naked now. Back and forth on my father's porch, screaming at the top of my lungs at this demon who I know that is behind this tree. I'm ready. That's death coming to get me. I'm ready to die, but I'm going to fight because I'm no punk. Let's go. I know you're going to kill me, but I'm going out with a fight in my mind. After I don't know how long of ranting and raving and on my father's front porch with no clothes on, I come back into the home and I fall flat on my face, only to be awakened once again 
by the sunlight kissing me on my cheek the next morning through the shades. I'm mad at God now. I'm angry at God. God, why are you doing it? Why are you torturing me? I don't want this thing called life anymore. I don't want it. Why are you torturing me like this? From that point on, I, my father came back into town. I, I, I hooked up with Curtis Graham. I got into treatment, 28-day treatment. And when I came out of that treatment center, and here's the ironic thing about going into treatment. Uh, I, I was facing more jail time at my job because I had been taken from my job. They knew about it. And my boss came to me and said, listen, either you're going back to jail or you're going to this lockdown treatment center for 28 days. Curtis Graham convinced me to go to that lockdown treatment center. My father could not drive me the two hours away to Lumberton, North Carolina. Curtis decided that he was going to take me that day. That man that saved my life got, took off work and took me to a treatment center two hours away. And we cried the whole way down. Curtis and I cried the whole way down. I didn't, I'm not knowing what I'm to expect. I, I, I've never been to anything like this in my lifetime. I, I, I know that I'm a failure. Curtis drops me off at that treatment center. The first two weeks at that treatment center, I spent womanizing. In other words, they had pretty women that were getting treatment in this treatment center. I'm going to show everybody here that I don't belong. I, they made a mistake by locking me in here. I can't go home. I'm going to show them I went from room to room at night, just, just womanizing the first two weeks. Something happened the, the second week. I, got, I had an appointment with one of their doctors there. I learned that I had suffered from a mental illness most of my life from an early age, clinical depression for everything that I had been through. I had learned that I was suffering from addictive disease. At first, I did not want to accept it. Man, I don't have no mental illness. We, we don't do that in my community. We don't do that. Uh, what, what are you talking about? I, I'm, a, I'm an African-American man. We don't do no, no mental illness thing. And then it came to me. Man, I, I'm not a bad person. I, I'm not a failure. Something truly happened to me. Something happened to me. As a result of what happened to me, Hence the drug addiction, hence the mental illness, hence the jail, hence the suicide attempts, hence the lockdown inpatient treatment, hence everything that I've ever been through because of something that happened to me. Man. When, when you speak on, when you speak on all of this, you have this, you know, you, you wanted to, you, you spoke on, wanting to go out being high versus using a weapon and being in pain. You, you spoke on, you know, you were ready to die, but you didn't want to go out without a fight. What, what is that? I, I, I've always, I've, from, from young, we, we, we had lived in some, some direst situations and I used to be frightened to death in that trailer. I used to be frightened to death sleeping in the car uh, on these dark roads. I used to be frightened to death. And I, for some reason, I made a decision years ago that, you know, whatever happens, I don't care if I, if I die, but I'm a fight. I'm a fight. I'm not a punk. I, I, that, that macho thing, whatever that is. I don't know if it's inbred and when you grow up in, uh, when you spend time in the, in the, in the projects, uh, but that everybody has it. I'm going to fight. Even though if you got a gun and I got my hands, I'm still going to fight. If you got a knife and I got my hands, I'm still going to fight. If you got 20 people and it's just me, I'm still going to fight. Y'all are going to kill me, but I'm still going to fight. And that, that's where that, for some reason, 
and that was born. And, and for, for everything I knew about my father, he was the same way. Everything I know about my brothers, they are the same. We, we fight, even if the odds are against us. Yeah. When you, when you speak on that, the first thing that comes to mind is grit. Yeah. To, to fight through something. And I mean, I, I know at that time, your, your fight and your world was probably altered because of everything that you were dealing with. And so to know that you have that grit in you, that will to fight, and then to actively seek treatment and understand that you were dealing with a mental illness, that you weren't a bad person, what did that do for you? Man, it truly set me free. Once again, I did not accept it at first because now this mental illness thing, you know, in our community, you crazy, uh, you you off, you psycho when it comes to the word mental illness. That's what we were taught. You know, there's a stigma attached to that thing, especially in our community. But after I thought about it, after I realized that, man, I, I'm not this bad person, something literally happened to me. It, it's truly set me free. It set me free for from. From, from understanding that I'm not a sinner. Here we go with that, the, the religion thing. I was told that I had demons in me. I was told that I must have done something wrong. No, something happened to me. I was told that I will never make it. And because of, because of, no, something happened to me. I was told that I was a failure. No, something happened to me. Hear me, something happened. Yeah. Something happened that almost broke you. Yeah. Man. That kind of leads into, you know, my uh, the next topic of what were some of the signs that you were dealing with grief and trauma, you know, feelings, thoughts, actions? So, so some of the signs that, that, that I, I felt that, uh, number one, it was an internal battle. I hated how I looked. I hated looking in the mirror. I hated, you know, any time that I looked at, as, even as a child, I hated it. People would tell me that I was a cute looking kid. I never received it because I thought all of that was weighing on me. So that was number one. If you can't even accept yourself, you know, uh, the, the, above anything else that you deal with, self is, is the number one thing. And, and then, then more, more signs was that, I was socially awkward. I, I, it wasn't easy for me to relate to others and, and to, to, to accept, especially accept friendship from others because I thought that they were going to hurt me. They were going to uh, abuse me. So I would end relationships real quick. I would end friendships real quick. I'm, I'm going to do it before you do it to me. Yeah, I know you have an alternative motive. So I would go into new relationships knowing that I'm going to uh, sabotage this thing. We self-sabotage when we don't love ourselves. So that, 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 that's another quick sign. Number two, I, 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 uh, some more signs was I, I, I did not like, uh, uh, I slept a lot. As a, I, when, anytime we, got, we had an opportunity to be able to sleep, I just knew that I would sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. In other words, I, I really did not want to be a part of reality. So I, I did not want to even be, be, I did not want to live. I just wanted, I was just existing. Uh, more at an early age, I started to envision, I started to hallucinate with birds. I read about it in my book. Anytime a trauma happened to me, anytime a situation happened to me that was dire and I, I did not understand it, 
for some reason, I would visualize birds flying over my head. And I, I would look, gaze up into the sky and I would envision, I don't know if these things were real or fake. I write about it in my book. And I, I truly believe that it was God's way of sending me peace because every time that I would envision or, or see these birds, uh, a warm peace would, would ooze over me. When I would get, be getting molested, a warm peace, when I would envision these birds would ooze over me. When we would be out in the car, not knowing where our next meal was coming from and not having a peace, I would envision birds in a warm peace come over me so you know uh, uh, visual uh, uh, hallucination and audio hallucinations and things like that you would hear things and and then it, it was it was a gamut of things that I had dealt with in my life especially early on because once again I, I didn't I just thought I was a bad person I just thought I was a sinner I was thought I was doomed for hell I thought I was uh, I had thought I had demons in me like the church folks said and all of that so more than the outside uh, entities or whatever they were, the outside forces, it was the inner me that was ruining me the fastest. Indeed. So self-sabotaging, sleeping a lot, hallucinations. A um... uh, 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 negative self-talk and, and always negative self-talk. I don't care what was going on. I, we could be in the happiest situations and uh, uh, I, I would negatively, okay, this is going to turn out wrong. Uh, this is, somebody's going to do something wrong. So I'm not going to be able to enjoy this. So, so somebody is, is teasing me. Somebody's going to pull the rug out from under me. Always negative self-talk. Always. Gotcha. So what were, what were some things that you could do to help yourself deal with well, the trauma and grief. Like, so, well, so, you know, we're getting to the point of like, you helping yourself deal with it. Well, one of the major things that I realized, uh, there's a statement that we use, the ability to motivate action from within is the most important skill that you will ever learn or teach. I'm gonna say that one again. The ability to motivate action from within is the most important skill you will ever learn or teach. I stopped depending. The first thing that I did, and I realized that the power has to come from within me. I stopped depending on mother, father, brother, sister, psychiatrist, psychologist, everybody around me, because once again, I knew that these people were going to fail me eventually. I had to work from within, in with, inward without first. The, the, the most important thing that I learned was when I got with Curtis Graham, and he gave me the opportunity to get it out. What do I mean by that? When I go out and do my teeth, I equate. How many of y'all have ever been sloppy drunk before? I mean sloppy drunk, and I raise my hand. I say to the point that you don't need Pepto-Bismol poured down your throat. You don't need antiacids. You need to throw up, get it out, whatever that it is. You've got to be able to get it out. I don't need Medicare. I don't need counseling. Somebody give me the opportunity just to get it out first. And then you can pour medicine in me. I, I need to be emptied first. That's one of the biggest things I've learned. I had to empty first. Second thing, I, I had to realize that recovery truly starts from within. Thirdly, those I am statements that Curtis Graham told me about, man, that, that brought power into me. And, and, and as a result of 
me learning those tools and techniques and, and knowing that the power is truly within me and not somewhere else because here's the truth here's the truth about it if I, and I used to do this if you leave your recovery in your doctor's hands and let's say your doctor is fired or he gets another job where is your recovery it's gone with them if you leave your I hear a lot of the motivational speakers today that say you, you got to have a why you got to have a why my why is my wife or my why is my mother and that's good if it works for you I, I write about it in my second book if it works for you, work that thing until it's red hot. It didn't work for me because oftentimes those people that I connected, that I grabbed hold to would leave me or, or, or would disappoint me. So I had to find it within. The ability to motivate action from within is the most important skill you will ever learn or teach. As a result of me learning that, it came from within. I had to search from within. I had to get it out first. I had to get the poison out first. Another statement that you may have heard, it's not the snake bite that kills you. It's the venom that's left inside of you that will eventually kill you if you don't get it out. That's the first step, getting it out. Having somebody that will just listen to you, man. Just listen, just sit, no judging, no condemnation. Just let, let me get it out. And then I can put medicine in. Then I can use the I am statements. Then I, then I can use all the other tools and techniques that I, I share with the audiences as I go around the country speaking. Indeed. So the first help is coming from within and recognizing you know that. Let's talk about the support around you. What kind of help would you have wanted from others in what you were dealing with? Man, I wish I had learned about this thing called peer support. The definition of peer support is this. Peer support is help given to those in need by another who have gone through a similar trauma or challenge. I'm going to say that again. The definition of peer support. Peer support is help given to those in need by another who have gone through a similar trauma or challenge. Curtis Graham, before the word, the definition of peer support ever existed, Curtis Graham was that person. Curtis Graham who had been through some of the things that I had been through. Now I see hope. I, you know, my father prayed for me. I believe his prayers kept me alive, but it wasn't until I met that man who I who had been through some things. And if you don't mind, real quick, I have this, this, this true story that I tell to, to relate to that topic. In 1954, it had been stated that it is before 1954. It had been stated that it is humanly impossible for a human being to run under a four-minute mile. Many had tried, all had failed. So they wrote it in the record books. It's humanly impossible for a human being to run under a four-minute mile. Well, in 1954, a man named uh, Roger Bannister was the first man to run under a four-minute mile. After Roger Bannister had did it, Tens of thousands of people started to do it. Even high school kids started to do it. The question that I pose when I go out and speak is why? Why were they able to do it? The answer is clear. They knew it could be done. Now they know it can be done. So let's go do it. Roger Bannister. Curtis Graham was my Roger Bannister. Peer support. Why did they do it? Because they knew it could be done. Because they knew it could be done, yes. Indeed. So what's been the toughest part of your journey? The toughest part of my journey, um, 
I, I once again, I believe it was the the self. You know, I, I had already given up the fact that others may not believe me, others may not accept me, others may not respect me. I had given up that long time ago. It was the belief in myself, the respect in myself. That was the toughest part because once again, I have been damaged in my formidable years, in my growing year. You know, they say between the ages of one and seven, you, you are set in stone. Everything else is just icing on the cake. So everything that you learn, everything, how you act, how you interact, how you believe, how you disbelieve is created from the ages of one to seven. I had been traumatized most of those years, man. So I, I the, the, the self me, was the most challenging part of me. Man, now today, I love myself, man. I, I, I love the fact that everything that I've been through, once again, nothing is wasted in a transformed life. My life has been transformed, so I'm using everything that I've ever been through to assist someone else. So me, I, I, M-E, was the number one hurdle in my life, getting over. Gotcha. And so, you know, we, we talk about this, road to recovery, this process of healing and overcoming, we, we have that old statement, hurt people, hurt people in the process. Uh, can you talk about the people that you hurt and how you had to make amends or how you made amends? The, the, that, that's a great question. And I, I, I sought diligently to call, to write, to uh, text or whoever, everybody that, that I ever uh, harmed on, on my journey of destruction. And uh, not only in my words, but I, I tell them, if I had the opportunity to, to, to share with them, I tell them, I, now I don't, after I go to them, ask for forgiveness, tell them what I'm doing, tell them how I'm trying to change the world. Here's the, here's the poignant moment of my speech to them. I tell them, now I need you all to not believe a word that I just said. I need you all to watch my actions from here on out. Once again, action speaks so much louder than words. So I, I give them the, the spiel. Yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Please forgive me. I was not in my right mind. I was suffering from this clinical depression and, and, and addictive disease disorder. And I, I, all this trauma had happened to me. Please forgive me. I was not in my right But now I, I need you not to believe that I, I've changed. I need you to watch my actions from here on out. And I, I purposely say that everywhere that I go because truly, your actions will speak so much louder than any word you will ever muster. Indeed. And so what did you do for the people that weren't ready to forgive you or didn't want to forgive you? I learned many years ago, there's a difference between confronting someone and having a confrontation with someone. Having a confrontation with someone means that I'm going to go tell them how I feel and, I, you know, they, 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 can, I'm, they better accept what I'm saying. No, that, that, that never works. Confronting someone means that, listen, I'm going to come share with you. You can accept this or not. It no longer belongs to me. I'm laying this at your feet. You can do with it what you will, but it's no longer mine. It's no longer my burden to carry. I, 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 I'm, I'm releasing it. I'm getting it off of me. I'm regurgitating it. It's not my responsibility to how you, what you do with it. It's my responsibility to come here and lay it at your feet. If we leave this, this confronting uh, friends or cordial, that's cool. If we, leave it, you, if we leave it and you're more upset at me, that's cool. You make that, you make that decision before you even go to the person. It's whatever which way is cool. It's my responsibility to lay it right here. What you do with it, 
It's on you. Indeed. I, I, I like how you say that because it sounds like you first had to forgive yourself and, and, and be okay with it. Yeah. And, and, you know, because they always say forgiveness isn't for the other person, it's for yourself. That is correct. Be able to go to someone and acknowledge the hurt and pain that you 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 put upon them, you know, it is a big thing. And then, like you said, just to show that action, that look, don't just hear me, watch me. There you go. Right. Most important. Most important. Yeah. What kept you going when you wanted to give up? Well, uh, I can. I have to say those times I wanted to take my life, it was God and God alone because I was done. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was no hope. There was no, there was no, maybe there's going to be a brighter day. I was truly done and I wanted to death. I wanted not to breathe anymore. I wanted my heart to stop. I wanted not to be here anymore. I was done with this thing called life. So God, uh, you know, I'm not a, re a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. I, you know, religion, once again, those religious folk told my daddy to crucify me, man. Get him out your house, pastor. He's ruining your ministry. Let him get him out of here. But I, I see him in the streets. Church folk told my father that. So uh, what kept me going, God, my, my belief, you know, after I didn't believe in myself, after I got out of those situations, I showed up uh, in, in, in treatment. The second week in treatment, I realized once again, I was diagnosed with the clinical depression and addictive disease. I realized that it, I was not a bad person, that something happened to me. I showed up in life. And ever since then, man, I can go from, from obstacle to obstacle. Like I told you, I got a whole lot of certifications. But what I want people to know is that I'm a mountain climber, man. I've been through some things and I've climbed some mighty mountains. And then there's a parable that I use at the end of all my speeches. It's called the mountain climber. And I, matter of fact, I, I, I wrote it in my second book. I ended my second book with the story of the mountain climber. And, uh, you know, it, it, it chronicles perfectly you know, what, what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. So you, you talk about this mountain climber and of course, you know, it's not easy to climb, to climb a mountain. Uh, so, you know, for, for you, what caused you to correct your destructive behavior? Here's the here's the beautiful one of the number one lesson I learned when I was out in the streets as a drug addict. Man, I, I I would I would literally get on my little sister's pink girl's bike and travel through the rain, through lightning storm, going to get my drug of choice. I literally showed up at in, in, in New York, 125th Street, Amsterdam Avenue, in this abandoned building where we heard that there was the best drugs in town. An abandoned building. There was a man at the bottom of those steps didn't speak English. He patted, had a gun, patted us down. Only English that he spoke, two flight up, two flight up. So we, after he patted us down, I'm walking in this abandoned building, two flights up, because I heard that there was the best drugs in town there. Get to the top of those stairs, there was another man with a gun, pat us down again. He opens this door, drugs all over the place. We put our money down, get the drugs of choice, go back down the stairs, get in the car and go back to Jersey. My point is this. I've got story after story after story about how I went through insurmountable obstacles to go get my drug of choice. My point is this. Now that I'm on the other side of that, I have no excuse not to do this thing right. If I can walk through hell to get my drug of choice, 
I can walk through that same hell to stay on this road to recovery and to get back this message of recovery. So when when trials come up my my way today, yeah, they may sting sometime, but I keep I keep I shrug them off and I keep going. When 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 situations come up unforeseen and the bills are not uh, are overdue and the relationship is falling apart and and my mother died in 2010, my father died in 2016, and the world seemed to come to an end. Man, I'm able to get through that thing because I had proven I'm a mountain climber when it, when, it, when it came to the bad. So that, that means it's in my DNA now to go through hell to get to what I want. Now that I'm on the right side, I'm going to go through hell to get to what I want because I didn't use an excuse back then. Now I can't use an excuse now. Indeed. And so uh, when you went to the 28-day treatment, was it because you wanted to or was it out of, you know, fear of jail? Out of fear of jail, out of fear, because uh, I had been to jail already, you know, three times, and out of, out of the fear of going back to this long stint in jail. Uh, once again, I was messed up in the head, still undiagnosed with a mental illness, still a drug addict. And Curtis literally is the one that convinced me to go to an inpatient lockdown facility because I, I didn't know what decision to make. I, I was so messed up in the mind, and I'm glad that I made that decision. It was a life changer. So when you, so I, I remember you were speaking on it, and so you know, you you went into the facility. First two weeks, you were womanizing. Tell us about the change in week three. Well, once again, I, I, I had a doctor's appointment. And before the, before the first two weeks, you know, we were going to groups and we were having you know, therape you know, therapeutic sessions with counselors and things like that. The second week is when they call, he called me and I said, all right, Mr. Anderson, we, we've run the tests. We did this, that, and the other. You've got this, this disorder. There's uh, clinical depression, uh, addictive disease. These are mental illnesses. You've been suffering from this for years. I'm sitting in the chair. Wait a minute. No, that, that's not me. I, I, what are you telling me? I got a mental illness. We don't do that in the, in the African-American community. We don't do that. What are you talking about? Then he went on to explain it as a result of everything that I had been through. That's why, you know, you're not a bad person. You're not, you, you didn't do anything. You don't have demons. You, you, you didn't do anything. You suffered most of your life from trauma at an early age. Then the mental illness came, then the drug addiction came, but it was because of what happened to you. That's when I learned that. So it was kind of like an enlightenment, the, the start of your, your learning about yourself and what you had been through. It was, yes. Okay, okay. No, that, 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 that makes sense. And so I, I asked that question because, you know, do you feel like you have to wait until you hit rock bottom or until you're upon your darkest hour to make a change? I believe that's what they used to say many years ago, but the beautiful part about peer support, there's a peer support movement, movement happening all, literally all over the world. And once again, the definition of peer support is help given to those in need by another who have gone through a similar trauma or challenge. There's a connection that takes place. When, when I and I, I'm saying we, we need them all. We need therapists. We need counselors. We need psychologists. We need psychiatrists. We need uh, physical doctors. We need them all. But we also need peer support. We need to look into eyes to the eyes of someone who had been through, once again, the Roger Bannister story. I know it can be done now. This is not a fable. This is not, this is not unreal. This is not a movie. I'm looking into the eyes of somebody who had been through 
what I'm going through. Man, the, when I tell you that a connection takes place like none other, the walls start to come down like none other when, you, when you're looking into the eyes of somebody. So once again, years ago, they said, oh, people got to hit their rock bottom before the change comes. No, you don't. You got you to get real good treatment and meet a person that has been through successfully what you're, what you're dealing with and have learned some things. Sit down and regurgitate with that person. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about help, professional help. When you went into treatment, did your counselor, their race, gender, and background make a difference? Well, I, I tell the story. There's a reason why I'm so passionate, and, 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 and there's a reason why I give, when I speak, I give it with emotion. When I, when I was going through the first two weeks, we had a counselor that would come in, and he would say, okay, today we're going to talk about recovery and how everyone's life could change. And I would sit in the back of that class, scratching my head like, man, this, this is not connecting with me. This, this guy sounds like he's dead, man. I need something that's gonna, I, you gotta catch the fish before you clean them. In other words, you should dangle something in front of me, wake me up first. And, and so I made a commitment that I'm gonna give what I needed back in the day. So yeah, it's truly important that whoever is facilitating recovery dialogue you know, you got to catch the fish before you clean it. In other words, you got to you got to make it attractive, and, and then then they'll sit and listen and and, and get and get and, and probably if somebody had came in with the, the enthusiasm and the energy and and the emotion, I probably would not have gone through that first two weeks just womanizing. I probably would have listened. Okay, wait a minute. There's something to this thing here. Maybe I don't know, but yeah, I, I believe that you got to connect. You know, when when I saw Curtis Graham was an African American man. You know, he was just, he's just a regular guy who worked at a job at Oldbury Center in Gastonia, North Carolina, I mean, Goldsboro, North Carolina, where I worked at. Just a regular guy who saw me in the midst of my mess, recognized, man, that was me many years ago. Let me go talk to this young man. Just a regular guy. So, yeah, it, it, it took that. And he was passionate about his words. He was enthusiastic when he spoke to me. I started to believe him. And then I started to receive his message. Indeed. Man, you, you've been <laughs> you've been sharing some powerful stuff this whole thing. And I, I appreciate you for sharing. I mean, I've just been sitting back here in, in, in awe of just understanding the will and the drive of what a person has to go through. Yeah. Towards healing. And I and I mean you 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 lay that out in you know your 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 talk of being a mountain climber is is definitely what that is. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give your younger self? I write about that ironically in both of my books too. Uh, the the advice that I would if I had something to tell my younger self, I would say, you know, just hang in there, man. Just hang in there. And, you know, all you got to do is hang in there. It wasn't for naught. Just hang in there. There's something better coming. Just hold on. When you don't know what to do, just hold on. Uh, you know, and hang in there. What, what, what I would tell my younger self. And I, and I would tell my 85-year-old 80, self was, I would tell, and I write about it in my book, thank you for hanging in there, man. We made it. <laughs> so I would tell my 85-year-old self, thank you for hanging in there. I would tell my 20-year-old self, man, hang in there. It gets better. Indeed. I like that. I like that. So throughout all of this, 
do you see your growth? I, I truly see when, when I get calls, when I get emails, when I get texts, when I get letters from others who have set, had to, had to, you know, God had allowed me for them to, to be in one of my groups, to be in one of my one-on-one sessions, to have read my book. But I get messages from South Africa, Japan, the UK. Thank you, Mr. Anderson, for sharing your story. I think I can go on now. I've never been to those places in my life, man. When you're talking about that, that's the growth right there when others can be transformed just by my story alone. You know, it, it truly has, because I equate everything with not me. This has got to do everything with the God of my understanding, man. I don't take any of the credit. But when I hear people's lives being changed in places that I have never been, bruh, there's no words. There's no words. Indeed. Well, look, we're, we're about to wrap it up and close. And I mean, this has truly been an, an enlightening, you know, uh, conversation that we've had. Uh, tell everybody, you know, how they can get your book, what efforts that you have going on, how they can reach you. Well, they can go to Kindle Direct Publishing, KDP. And my first book is entitled A Beautiful Scars, My Journey to Wholeness and Healing by Brian Anderson. My second book is Beautiful Scars 2, The Ripple Effect. And both of those books, uh, once again, uh, my second book has been endorsed by three leading mental health professionals at Augusta uh, University. Uh, they've been traveled places I've never been. They're being utilized as teaching tools in mental health facilities. So they can go there. They can also go to my website, www.beautiful-scars.org. Once again, www.beautiful-scars.org. And if you don't mind, I would love to leave them with my mountain climber parable. If we got about another three minutes, I, I do this everywhere I go. I want to hear it. Let's go. All right. Uh, once again, I told you all how I've got ser several certifications, but what I want everyone to know about Brad Anderson is that he's a mountain climber. The parable of the mountain climber. There was a preacher, a doctor, and a mountain climber showed up at the gates of heaven, and Gabriel was standing there with a bag filled with wings. The preacher walks before Gabriel. Gabriel reaches into the bag of wings. Gabriel pulls out two wings. Gabriel pins the two wings on the back of the preacher. Gabriel says, now perform for me and prove to me that you're worthy to walk through the gate. That preacher started flapping both of his wings. He takes off into the air, does a beautiful spin. He comes down and lands. Gabriel says, enter thou in, for you have proven yourself worthy to walk through the gate. The doctor walks before Gabriel. Gabriel reaches into the bag of wings. Gabriel pulls out two wings. Gabriel pins those two wings on the back of the doctor. Gabriel says, now perform for me. And prove to me that you're worthy to walk through the gate. That doctor started flapping both of his wings. That doctor takes off into the air, does a beautiful spin, comes down and lands. Gabriel says, enter thou in, for you have proven yourself worthy to walk through the gate. The mountain climber, person like myself, walks before Gabriel. Gabriel reaches into the bag of wings. Gabriel pulls out one wing. Gabriel pins that one wing on the back of that mountain climber. Gabriel says, now perform for me and prove to me that you're worthy to walk through the gate. Just then, every mountain that that mountain climber had to climb in his lifetime come rushing back to his memory. That mountain climber started flapping that one wing. That mountain climber taxis to the beginning of that runway. 
And that mountain climber flaps that one wing some more. And that mountain climber taxis down that runway and he shoots up into the air and he does a spin and a turn and a flip and some somersaults and some more spins and some more turns and some more somersaults. Just then an angel walks before Gabriel and says, Gabriel, who in the heavens is that? Gabriel says, that there's the mountain climber showing you what can be done with half the chance. So the next time somebody walks up to me and say, hey, bro, wasn't you diagnosed with a mental illness? Wasn't you in jail on three different occasions? Didn't you try to take your life twice? What makes you think you have the right to stand before somebody with a I look them dead in the eye and I say, one wing, baby, one wing. <laughs> Indeed. I appreciate that. I like that a lot. I do, I do. All right. Well, look, Brian, I thank you for coming on. And to all our listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed this just as much as I have. And we're going to close and tell everyone to stay safe, stay focused, and stay engaged. God bless you, my brother. You've been listening to Guards Down with Greg Washington. PTSD and complicated grief are very real. About 8 out of every 100 people will have PTSD at some point in their lives. About 20 to 54% of people with complicated grief will simultaneously suffer from major depressive disorder. And that's why shows like this are hugely important. Raising awareness for PTSD and complicated grief. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us at GuardsDown.com. We are Iron.org. On Facebook at GuardsDown. And find us on YouTube and Instagram.